Lord, as we come now to the reading of your word, um, delivered by your spirit, the prophet Ezekiel, we ask that you would bless us and that you um, would give us the faith that we might uh, fear you as we ought, that we might hold you in holy reverence at the awesomeness of your name and your promises, and that through that faith in your promises and the things that you have said you will do, the things that you are doing and the things that we wait for, we ask that you would give us strength uh, to walk in your ways, particularly, particularly in giving you praise and honoring you and worshiping you and loving you above all things, above all people. Lord, you are good and you show to us wonderful things, magnificent things. Bless us in them. We pray, Lord, um, we pray, Lord, for these things. We pray them in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm going to ask you to be seated, please. Let's turn our attention to Ezekiel. I've wrestled um, for several weeks now trying to figure out how to preach uh, this passage, and I, I'm not going to guarantee to you that I've nailed it <laughs> or that I will um, get this exactly right, um, but um, there are really, really good things here, um, which I want, uh, it's my aim to help you to understand them and see them for yourself. And it's my prayer to you that it is a, a great blessing to you. One of the challenges of Ezekiel 40 through 42 is it's really dense. Um, and it holds together as one uh, unit. Um, if we were to take it apart um, piece by piece, um, we would be in this section quite a long time. And um, I'm not necessarily sure to your benefit um, not because of the weakness of your faith or the lack of goodness of God's word, but the weakness of your preacher. So I'm not sure how beneficial that would, that would be to you. So I do want to take it as a unit. However, it is very dense and it is long. Um, so here's what I'm going to do this evening. Um, depending on the mercy, uh, mercy of God um, for his uh, wisdom and strength, I want to read portions of these chapters and walk through them with you and then draw some lessons from it. And I would encourage you um, to, if you have time and opportunity, um, to go back through and read them carefully again and read them alongside a good commentary. I've mentioned before uh, Ian Duguid's commentary on Ezekiel is really excellent and has been blessing me in a number of ways um, as I've been going through this passage and through, the, through all of Ezekiel. There are others as well, um, but that's, that's a very good, understandable, accessible, um, trustworthy one. Um, you may also find in your bulletins uh, from that commentary a picture that looks like this um, of the temple that Ezekiel um, is given a vision of. What essentially happens in these 
passage, in this passage, in these chapters, is an angel um, appears to Ezekiel. We'll read about this in just a moment. And takes him around this temple in, in the vision. Um, not the old temple that was built, not, the, not an earthly temple because uh, that was destroyed. Um, but here, while uh, he is still and others are still in exile, God gives him this vision of a, of a new temple. A vision of, we might call it a, a heavenly temple. And he describes it in a lot of detail and for very good reasons, which we'll consider this evening. And because it's very dense, um, at least hard for me to keep track of, um, just in my hearing, and that's partly why you have the um, sort of a, a picture description of what is described in these um, verses. And we'll walk through some of that uh, together. I want to begin... Um, with, by reading these, uh, these first few verses, beginning in chapter 40. I'll read verses 1 through 6. Let's give our attention to God's word. In the 25th year of our exile, at the beginning of the year, on the 10th day of the month, in the 14th year, after the city was struck down, on that very day, the hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me to the city. In visions of God, he brought me to the land of Israel and set me down on a very high mountain on which was a structure like a city to the south. When he brought me there, behold, there was a man whose appearance was like bronze with a linen cord and a measuring reed in his hand. And he was standing in the gateway. And the man said to me, son of man, look with your eyes and hear with your ears and set your heart upon all that I shall show you. For you were brought here in order that I might show it to you. Declare all that you see to the house of Israel. So this begins um, Ezekiel's vision. Um, it begins this, uh, a, a description of this temple that he sees. And there's a couple things uh, to note about this. Um, first of all, Ezekiel is something like a Moses here, right? Remember when Moses was on Mount Sinai, he was also given a vision of a temple, a temple that would, or a tabernacle um, that would be uh, constructed. Hebrews talks about this. He talks about how Moses received heavenly plans. He saw a vision in heaven and, uh, and, and that was also on a mountaintop. This vision uh, that he has given here is of something new. And this is really important because, remember, Israel in her disobedience um, did not experience in a final way what we sang earlier in Psalm 128. Instead of blessing and flowering and households just uh, springing forth and, and the happiness in Jerusalem and Zion, all of it was destroyed. Um, the fields and mountains were um, flowing with the blood of God's people and their enemies. That became a place of desolation, a place of wildness. It was like Eden had reserved, uh, sort of turned backwards into a, a place of darkness, thorns and thistles, wild beasts. With all that destruction is because of their sin, because of all the ways that they had failed. They were wondering what hope would there be. And in the previous chapters, we've read about that hope, this kind of new life that what God would give them. A new covenant that he would inaugurate. 
And he would establish his spirit within them and cause them to walk in his ways, cause them to fear him so that these blessings would come. And after that, we read um, in the previous chapters, right before chapter 40, of this great battle in which uh, the world would seek to attack this blessing, attack God's people and undo the whole thing. But God vanquishes them all and establishes his people strong and secure. And now in this vision, in chapter 40, Ezekiel is being told, he's being given a picture of, of what the thing is to hope for, or what, what, what uh, a, a thing to hope in and hope for. And this thing is a picture, in some ways, like the old temple, but also different in some ways. It's new, and it represents a new hope. Instead of um, just going back to the city and sort of struggling along as they always had, God promises that something new was coming, something better. The temple, you remember, always uh, uh, resembled and represented God's presence with his people. A holy place, a dwelling place for the Lord where he would be with them, protect them, guide them. It was a place that required sacrifice for sin because, uh, w- because without holiness, no one sees the Lord. No one comes near the Lord. And so the temple was very much about the Lord's presence and him making that presence possible through the sacrifice, of sin, or sacrifice for sin. And that picture here that is, he's being promised in a way, a picture of this new place uh, provides hope for them. The Lord has not abandoned them. The Lord has not forgotten them. There is this hope of a new temple. And this angelic figure that we are going to read about again in a little bit in Revelation at the end of the sermon, um, we are going to hear how this angel takes him around and shows him uh, the temple. And from the description of that architecture, we learn a number of things about this hope Uh, that God is promising. It begins with this next section that I'd like to read um, in chapter 40. Um, uh, I want to read uh, verses 28. Uh, No, that's not right. I want to read uh, verses 5 and 6 of chapter 40. And behold, there was a wall all around the outside of the temple area, And the length of the measuring reed in the man's hand was six long cubits, each being a cubit and a handbreadth in length. So he measured the thickness of the wall, one reed, and the height of the wall, one reed. So the very first thing we have a description of is a description of the wall. Um, If you have uh, this uh, chart in in front of you, um, I don't believe it's, it's labeled, it's this... It's the area all the way outside of the thing. And this is huge. This is a a huge, a huge wall. Um, Approximately 10 and a half feet tall, right? So I'm 6'1". Imagine another four feet above me. 10 and a half feet tall and 10 and a half feet thick. That's a massive, massive wall. This place is protected, right? One of the great concerns and problems before was that the temple uh, fell apart, um, was destroyed. Uh, The wall here is massive 
and thick, ten and a half feet tall, ten and a half feet wide. And it goes all the way around in a perfect square. Now that's important because the old temple uh, did, was not in a perfect square. The center of it was the Holy of Holies, as we'll see uh, here, it was square. But the, as you kind of got out, the less square you got. That's important because the square here represents this kind of perfection. And in this temple, this perfect, this perfect, perfect nature of these measurements, all exactly the same, is the whole thing. Right? It's not just the inner part, but the whole thing um, is, is this square. As we go on and uh, read, if you, or if you look at your picture, you'll read then about an entrance into the temple. So on the right-hand side of the picture, the east side, there are these stairs that go up. Seven stairs into this gatehouse that is described um, in uh, the following verses. I want to go um, um, to describe a little bit this to you, and then I'll read about the inner court starting in verse 28. So just a few things to note here. If you look at the picture, there's this on the east side, on the right side of the picture, there are these seven stairs that go up. So you imagine yourself at ground level with huge walls going up, and then there are these stairs kind of going up into the wall, right? And, um, and then into this, this gatehouse, this massive, massive gatehouse. And as you go in, um, you pass by these, these various uh, rooms, um, those little black, uh, little black rectangles on either side of that A represent these, these rooms where perhaps uh, guards would be stationed. So this would be a very impressive thing. Uh, these um, doors, these gates are about 25 feet wide. Huge, massive entrance as you climb up these stairs into what is sort of a fortress, right? You move up and you're in this gatehouse. You have to move uh, a ways through this gatehouse um, uh, before you ever get into the actual sort of complex area. Excuse me. And the next uh, several verses in this chapter then describe um, the various gates. You'll notice that there is another one on the north side, another one on the south side, a no gate on the west side. There is no access into the uh, this temple complex from this part, and this is likely because that's the side um, on which uh, the most holy and the holy of holies uh, was. The Lord's throne room um, right past the altar. That's letters D and E, what's properly called the temple. We'll come back to there in a moment. But there's no access on that side. Uh, it's restricted. You can only come, you can only approach it, and you can only approach it through, if you look at letter C, it is, that's the altar. There's no way, in other words, into the Lord's presence apart through an altar where sacrifice for sin is made. I hope the point there is obvious. Right? There's no coming into the holiness of the Lord and the presence of the Lord apart from sacrifice for sin. It's essential. It's right here at the heart, at the center of the temple. I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit. In order to get there, you have to go through one of these massive gatehouses on the north, on the south, or on the east. 
But once you go through them, um, you're not immediately inside yet. You are only in the outer court. That's uh, O there. It's approximately 175 feet from the beginning entrance all the way uh, up into uh, the inner court. So fairly good distance, right? This is a large, uh, a large building and with lots of space, right? There's not stuff all around and things and activities. You're just moving through this space, this strong, powerful, open space. As you move through, let's say you come in through the east gate, you move through that open court area, um, uh, it's letter O, then you come to another gate, uh, uh, one of three, that letter B there on your picture. You move to this new gatehouse. Before you come into this, what's called the most holy place there, the inner sanctuary, you have to move through another series of gatehouses, another series of protection. If you go um, to the north and the south side of those gates, you'll see on either side uh, the letters H and I. On one side, um, there is a, a place for the work uh, where the priests are, that's H, and then an I, a place where offerings are, are prepared. You begin to sense that sort of as you move closer and closer to the holiest place in the temple, there are continuing distinctions, continuing or growing levels of protection. The descriptions that the angel um, gives as he goes and measures these things, we even see a narrowing of the entrances into the building. It starts, as I mentioned earlier, about 25 feet, and then it shrinks. To the next passageway you go through is about 7 feet, and then the last one you go through is about 6 feet wide. That's a big change, right, from 6 to 25. There's this narrowing that happens as you move closer and closer to the holiness of the Lord. Let's read a little bit about the inner court now. Ezekiel 40, verse 28. Then he brought me to the inner court through the south gate, and he measured the south gate, and it was the same size as the others. Its side rooms, its jams, and its vestibules, or vestibule, were, um, were of the same size as the others, and both it and its vestibule had windows all around. Its length was 50 cubits, and its breadth 25 cubits, and there were vestibules all around, 25 cubits long and 5 cubits broad. Its vestibule faced the outer court, and palm trees were on its jams, and its stairway had eight steps." In the next two paragraphs, starting at verse 32 and then verse 35, he then describes the east gate and the north gate being essentially the same thing. And then in verses 38 through 43, he describes those, uh, the vestibule where the, gate, where the burnt offerings were washed and prepared and those things that I mentioned, mentioned earlier, the chambers for the priests as well. This chapter concludes as he moves from, the, uh, into, from that area then uh, into, the, the, um, uh, into the temple. Before we move on to there, let's read a little bit more then, um, not about the gatehouses, but the inner temple um, into which it read, led. I'll read verses 1 through 4 of chapter 41. Then he brought me to the nave and measured the jams. 
On each side, six cubits was the breadth of the jams, and the breadth of the entrance was ten cubits, and the side walls of the entrance were five cubits on either side. And he measured the length of the nave, forty cubits, and its breadth, twenty cubits. Then he went into the inner room and measured the jams of the entrance, two cubits, and the entrance, six cubits, and the side walls on either side of the entrance, seven cubits. And he measured the length of the room, twenty cubits, and its breadth, twenty cubits, across the nave. And he said to me, this is the most holy place. And so that twenty by twenty measurement, um, you see then we have a square, which is uh, represented in the picture here, that uh, letter N. So he moves, um, he moves then into the, the inner temple. I want to read now to you ver- beginning at verse 15. Verse 15 through 26. The inside of the nave and the, ve- nave and the vestibules of the court, the thresholds and the narrow windows and the galleries all around the three of them, opposite the threshold, were paneled with wood all around, from the floor up to the windows, now the windows were covered, to the space above the door, even to the inner room and on the outside, and all the walls around, inside and outside, was a measured pattern. It was carved of cherubim and palm trees, a palm tree between cherub and cherub. Each cherub had two faces, a human face toward the palm tree on the one side and the face of a young lion on the palm tree on the other side. They were carved on the whole temple all around, from the floor to above the door, cherubim cherubim, and palm trees were carved, similarly the wall of the nave. The doorposts of the nave were squared, and in front of the holy place was something resembling an altar of wood, three cubits high, two cubits long, and two cubits broad. Its corners, its base, and its walls were of wood. He said to me, this is the table that is before the Lord. The nave and the holy place had each a double door, and the double doors had two leaves apiece, two swinging leaves for each door, and on the doors of the nave were carved cherubim, and palm trees, such as were carved on the walls. And there was a canopy of wood in front of the vestibule outside. And there were narrow windows and palm trees on either side, on the side walls of the vestibule, the side chambers of the temple, and the canopies. So as we move into this um, inner court, as we move into this place where the altar is, a letter C in your picture, um, we have um, uh, the symbolism of palm trees and cherubim. A cherubim uh, is the plural of cherub. Um, so two cherub is a cherubim, or are a cherubim, um, multiples. Uh, cherubs, cherubs, they are uh, angels. And they remind us of the beginning of Ezekiel when Ezekiel is brought and given this great vision of the Lord where the Lord on his throne is surrounded by these, this mighty host of angelic beings. Here that's pictured um, on uh, the walls um, and other places as well within this, within this area. The palm trees are often a symbol of fertility and of life. Um, the, we have here in some ways heaven and earth coming together. Um, the heaven being in the heavenly and visible realms, uh, including angels, um, and earthly realms. Um, and the angels themselves, they sort of seem to depict this. On the one hand, they are this, these strange creatures with two faces, the head of a human and the head of a lion, sort of facing different ways. 
On the other hand, they represent very earthly creatures, um, these great kings um, in the created realm um, in, in God's creation, in nature. And in all of this, we see that though there are these great separations and holiness, the Lord is bringing all under his authority. The Lord is picturing for us his holiness that is before him. His creation is gathered around in the praise of his name, um, and of course around and through a sacrifice for sin. The altar there, we read uh, three cubits high, and then in a similar way, very symmetrical, two cubits uh, by two cubits. A cubit, by the way, is uh, about 18 inches. Um, so a significant size um, here on um, the altar. As we continue on um, up into um, the most uh, holy places, into what is properly called uh, the temple, I want to point your fat to you to the fact that there is another um, stair step. So as you visualize this, this is important on your paper here. It all looks very flat, right? <laughs> but there's an increase of elevation that is happening. So not only are these sort of layers of protection and distinctions and holiness as you move closer and closer to the presence of the Lord, but you're also moving up, up, up. So first to come up into the building, it's seven steps, and then to come up into that inner court, it's another eight steps, and then there's another ten steps up uh, into the temple proper there, uh, where you see the letters D, E, and F. So there's this continuing rising action that's happening. This is a, a, not just a, a sort of flat area, it is a tall place. Um, Letters J on either side of the temple are described later as being three stories tall. Um, so it's, it's uh, where, um, yeah, anyway, three stories tall. So it's, it's getting quite high. If you, uh, the distance between the outer court, for example, and the inner court is about eight feet. So imagine standing in the outer court, and as you look up, as you're about to ascend into the, the inner court, that's, that's eight feet, and may explain why there's no corresponding wall around the, um, those inner gatehouses, right? because there's sort of a natural wall, a natural elevation. You can't just sort of walk in. You have, to you have to go up the steps. You have to go up those gatehouses in order to get into this this inner area. And then again, that happens once again as you climb these other 10 steps uh, into the temple area. As we come into the temple area, um, I want to read about these, the um, chambers um, for the priests in chapter 42. I'll start with verses 13 and 14. Then he said to me, the north chambers and the south chambers opposite the yard are the holy chambers, where the priests who approach the Lord shall eat the most holy offerings. There they shall put the most holy offerings, the grain offering, the sin offering, and the guilt offering, for the place is holy. When the priests enter the place, they shall not go out of it into the outer court without laying their garments in which they minister, for these are holy." They shall put on other garments before they go near to that which is for the people. 
And so not only is the architecture, the physical aspects of this building um, teaching us about the holiness of God, but even the actions of the priests that are described here, they have to change their clothes before they move from one area to another. They're supposed to only keep the sacrifices in one place and not another. These distinctions are hammering this point over and over and over again about the holiness of the Lord, the separateness of the Lord. And how what, uh, what comes near him must be holy. Must be holy. That is how the Lord dwells among his people. Let's finish um, with reading verses 15 through 19. Now when he had finished measuring the interior of the temple area, he led me out by the gate that faced east and measured the temple all around So the angel basically moves Ezekiel, as I've been doing in the sermon, moving us more and more inward, and now he takes him outside again. He takes him out through that east gate, and and it lets him see from a big picture perspective the whole thing again. He measures the east side with the measuring reed, 500 cubits, measuring the reed by the measuring reed all around. He measured the north side, 50 cubits, by the measuring reed all around. He measured the south side, 50 cubits, by the measuring reed. Then he turned to the west side and measured 500 cubits by the measuring reed. He measured it on the four sides. It had a wall around it, 500 cubits long, 500 cubits broad, to make a separation between the holy and the common. So here we have a description um, you've received Um, a description of this temple in Ezekiel's vision. What does it teach us? What are we supposed to know from this? Well, every building communicates something or other, right? Whether it's a McDonald's or a church or your house, right? The architecture, thoughtful architects anyway, good architects, plan and think through these things. They think about the purposes of which it serves and the things that uh, it is supposed to communicate to those who are there. When you go to a fast food restaurant, you don't find big cushy seats with candles and a soft music that tell you to just slow down, stay for a while, get comfortable and enjoy your food. Right? Fast food restaurants, it's about get in and get out. Right? Um, they're not mad about it. It's just what the building is for. Right? It's not meant to be a comfortable place where you sit and relax and enjoy uh, right, uh, your company and your food. A church has a similar um, thoughtfulness in it. Your home has a similar thoughtfulness in it. The way you enter it and the way you exit it, where you stand, how you move, things are put, ideally, right, in places where they ought to be, places that fit our needs and communicate to those who come there what that place is for. In some... um, in, in some places in the ancient Near East, uh, Ian Duguid um, points out that uh, there are sometimes after great victory battles, uh, tours are given of the victor's home. And maybe something like that's happening here. 
right? After the great battle of Gog and Magog, we are seeing in this heavenly vision the Lord established in his place. We walk around our champion's dwelling place and see and learn what it says about him, what it says about us, and what our hope is in him. What do we learn as we look at this architecture? What do we learn as we see its measurements and, um, and, the, and, um, and um, its various features? I think there's lots that we learn. One, I've emphasized many times already, and that is the holiness of the Lord. The separation, as it says, this wall is to make separate the holy and the common. God is separate from us, even though he dwells with us. We don't just waltz in to the Lord. We don't just find ourselves in the presence of the Lord without any problem. When the prophets are given visions of God in his holy place, they often are filled with awe and wonder and fear. God is a consuming fire, the scriptures say. He is to be worshipped with reverence and with awe. We do not just approach him lightly. The fact that we can approach him at all is a miracle, which we will consider before we close. But there is a hope here. Despite the awesomeness and despite the power and despite the holiness that is uh, exemplified here, it is here. Right? God is revealing this place to us so that we might know him, so that we might worship him, so that we might fear him. It also teaches us about the protection that we have in God who is our refuge. He is a strong king, a powerful Lord, a great protector of his people. Those who dwell in him, those who find themselves in him, have nothing to fear. The good news for us is that in the New Testament, God gives us yet more revelation that helps us to understand his word even better. What we learn in the New Testament is that Jesus is the fulfillment of this temple. Jesus says uh, this, and the apostles say it in numerous places. Uh, Jesus is, for our example, called Emmanuel, God with us. He says that he is the temple, that uh, in his body um, he will be destroyed and he will raise it up in three days, which he does. How is he the temple of God apart from him saying so, which is certainly enough? But he's also the temple of God in, in this way. One, in that he is Emmanuel, he is God with us. God coming into this world to dwell with us and to be near us even physically, an amazing thing. We also know that in the temple that is Jesus, he, is a, he ends up becoming a sacrifice for sin. Right? He who knew no sin becomes a sacrifice for sin. He, the, 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 the altar here is at the center of the temple and the two merge in Jesus. He is God with us, and he will take care of uh, the, the need for holiness by being that sacrifice and by being a priest who presents the sacrifice that we might be one with God, unified with him. Jesus goes to the cross 
Not simply to demonstrate his great power in dying and building up the temple again, but also to accomplish a once and for all sacrifice for sin. This is what the author uh, to the uh, letter of Hebrews um, says. That he gives himself as an, a not, a, not like the old priests did, and not like the old sa- animal sacrifices did, but in a complete and final way. Essentially what the New Testament says is that everything that we're reading about here, everything that was in the old temple and in the tabernacle before that is pointing to this person, to Jesus. Jesus fulfills this and in that way when we hear this description of this old temple, of the holiness, of the necessity for the sacrifice for sin, of the protection that we have, of the goodness of God and of the hope, we come to understand more things about our Lord and Savior. When Jesus says he is the temple, when he tells us he is Emmanuel, that he is God with us, our minds should go to Ezekiel and to other places in the Old Testament that describe this great city and temple on Mount Zion and go, oh, I know what he means. I know what he's saying. He's telling us something about the holiness of the Lord. He's telling us something about the promise of the Lord, about protection from sin and and forgiveness and all of the rest. That's who Jesus is. These things sort of color in and picture for us what it is he's talking about when he says he is the temple, when he is the hope for us. Well, that brings me to the end of um, a sermon this evening, and we'll conclude by reading a few passages in the book of Revelation. If you would, please uh, turn with me uh, to Revelation chapter 21. And before we read this, I want to pose this question to you. If Jesus is the fulfillment of the temple, If he is the fulfillment of Ezekiel's vision and of the things that had come before, then what will the new place be like? How will we dwell with God when the appearing of our Lord and Savior happens? That's something what Revelation tells us, and what we see is fascinating. What we see is something like the old vision, something like the former temple, but also something new that tells us even more about Jesus, our Savior. So first consider its similarities and the connections. In Revelation 21, we read this. This is beginning at verse 9. Then came that to John, then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. That's very interesting, right? He's basically saying, I'm going to show you, you, (laughs) I'm going to show you the church. I am going to show you those who are married to Christ. The wife of the lamb, lamb there being uh, the one who was sacrificed for the sin of his people, that he might present us pure and spotless before God. Okay, so he's going to show us the bride of Christ, 
the church of God, the wife of the Lamb. Verse 10 now. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain. Right? This is sounding familiar. And he showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Okay, so he's going to also see this great, uh, uh, great um, city, this city of Jerusalem. So those are some similarities, right? We have a mountain. Um, if you go to verse 15, we also read of the angel. And one who spoke to me, he had a measuring rod, only now it's of gold, right? A measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and its walls, Right, so this angel is going to take John now on a tour, a similar to he took of Ezekiel. But this temple is the one who, that is revealed after the one who has fulfilled the temple. And I misspoke. There's no temple, as we'll see. Uh, I'm getting ahead of myself. He shows this city, this new Jerusalem. Notice the connection between these two things. He says, I will show you the bride of Christ. I will show you the wife of the Lamb. Here's a city. Huh? Right? So somehow we are supposed to see these two things as being together. Right? We are dwelling with God, that we are a part of this city and this communion with God. One more similarity before we start talking about differences. In verse 16, we read about the squareness of this place. The city lies four square. This is verse 16. Um, its length, the same as its width. And he measured the city with its rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and its width and its height are equal. In Ezekiel's vision, we have no up and down measurement. Um, a little bit, like I said, with the three stories and occasionally with the heights of certain things like the wall, but no not the whole city, right? Not this whole complex. Here now, we've moved from a square to a what? A cube. <laughs> right? This cube. Um, again, um, um, apocalyptic, metaphorical language to show us something, right? If the square is perfect, it's all amplified now, right? It's not just the, the length and the width, but it's the height too. It's not a rod, a reed as it was before. Now it's a rod of gold. Everything is increased, amplified all the more after the coming of Christ. And what he's telling us here is not just that God will dwell with us, but we are the city, we are the bride, this union um, of, the, of, of um, the husband and the wife of the Lord and the people uh, is just getting closer and closer in ways that go beyond words, I think it's fair to say, but are expressed in these words to push us toward those thoughts and toward that hope. What other differences do we see? Well, verse 22 says this, I saw no temple in the city. Before, as we move from, through the wall and through these gatehouses and closer and closer to the Lord, there was, uh, that's when we finally arrived at the temple proper, right? That, the, there, that gray area on your picture. 
That's where we draw, uh, arrive at the temple proper. But here, there's no temple at all. Why? And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and its Lamb. The temple, in a way, has sort of expanded out. The temple has become sort of all one place. It's hard to describe, but it's almost like instead of all of these barriers, if you're in, you're in. (laughs) If you're there, you just belong and you're a part of all of it. Consider this point with... uh, with reference to access, right, in and out of this space. Look at chapter 2, or 22. Uh, uh, chapter 22, verse 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and they may enter the city by the gates. They enter the city by the gates and boom, the tree of life. No more like Eden after the fall is there a flaming sword and an angel guarding and protecting so that no one may eat of the tree of life. No, all who enter the gates just eat and enjoy and participate. We read in, and and how is it that they enter? They enter through the blood of the Lamb. They have washed their robes in His blood. They come into the city as those who are purified, as those who have made clean and perfect. They come in confidently and without fear because they belong. And those who are on the outside are on the outside. There's an in and there's an out. It's very simple. And on the outside, verse 15 of chapter 22, are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. There's one wall. If you go to chapter 21, verse 17... He measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. This is no just wall, big and strong. This thing is glorious. Bejeweled. Decked out, dressed to the nines. It is an amazing thing that announces to all who come the beauty of this place, the beauty of the Lord and of his people, the bride of the Lamb. And there are gates in this well, wall. We read in verse 21, um, 12 gates. But there are, so in other words, look at, they've, they've, quadrupled, right? The number of gates have quadrupled and they're on all sides now. The 12 gates were 12 pearls, each gate made of a single pearl and the street of the city was pure like transparent glass. In verse 25, I'll end with this, we read, and its gates will never be shut. 
by day, and there will be no night there. There's no fear. There's no need for protection anymore. Um, The holiness of the Lord is established through Christ, and all who dwell within him are perfectly safe in this beautiful, wonderful city. Those who are unholy, those who have rejected the Lord, those who have said, I want to live life on my own and I want to do my own thing and I want to do my own way, they're outside and can never get in. But those who are on the inside have everything. Have everything. How do we come to be those who are on the inside of this great city? who experience and enjoy the holiness of the Lord? How do we become the bride of Christ, the bride of the Lamb? How do we come to know a hope that is so great and so wonderful, so heavenly, so beautiful? Listen to verse 17. The Spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. And that, beloved, is the grace of God. You would think, right, that in all of this amazing glory, right, think back to the psalm that we read at the beginning of the service about walking around and looking at the citadels and just examining Zion, you'd think that you'd go around and you'd say, that is not a place for me. (laughs) That place communicates, no, (laughs) stay away, stay back, because I'm unholy. Because I've done unholy things, I have been born into sin, I live among unholy people, that is a place in which I don't belong. And what does the Lord say? He says, come. You don't have to bring anything. You don't have to pay anything. You don't owe me anything in order to get your ticket to come in. All we do is wash our robes, our dirty robes, our filthy robes, our unholiness in the blood of the Lamb. Which means we look at the sacrifice of Jesus for sin and we say, That's going to take care of it all. That Jesus takes care of it all. Every bit of uncleanliness, every bit of unholiness, every bit of sinfulness, God with us, Emmanuel, promises to take care of it all. And he did. He paid for all your sins. And he makes you holy in God's sight. So holy that when you put your faith in him and in him alone, Don't need to put it anywhere else, just in him. You can know that this heaven, this place, this position, this honor, this glory, this beauty, this perfection, this life, everlasting life, is yours. You are the bride of Christ. You are that new city. You belong to him and you always will. That's our Jesus our Savior, our Messiah. Let's pray. Well, great King of heaven and earth, we join our voices with the saints who have gone before, with the angels in heaven, and sing, Holy, Holy, Holy.
We marvel at your magnificence. We, we shudder at the strength of your character and your, your will and your power and your presence. And we relax into your arms of love, knowing that you have called us to be here. Knowing that you have offered us this, this great heavenly reality, this eternal life, free of charge, simply because of the goodness of your grace and your love toward us. Open our eyes that we might see and believe, that we might rest in Jesus and in Jesus alone for our, for our, as our only hope, that we might wait for his appearing and live all of our lives as those who belong to him, as those who are citizens of that heavenly city and testifying to him and to his works and to his, his coming again. Lord, make us bold and strong and lovely. Enable us to be people that glorify you in all of our lives. Lord, we pray um, for ourselves and for our loved ones. We pray uh, right now in particular for our children. We thank you for revealing these promises to them. We thank you for opening up your word to them. And we ask that you would uh, bring them to faith, that would rest in Jesus and in Jesus alone, that would see these promises as their promises, that would know you as their God, that they might tell of you to their children from generation to generation until all the elect are brought in. Lord, gather your sheep. Bless us as your people. And to those who do not yet know you, those who are, uh, who are um, outside of your heavenly city, those who are outside of Christ, those who are still clinging to their, their um, idols and immorality and their pride, our neighbors, our friends, our loved ones, and perhaps even here tonight, some, some of us ourselves, we ask that you would humble and bring change and renewal and awakening in the lives of those who do not yet know you. That as they hear those words come, they would come. That as they hear about the waters of eternal life, they would realize their thirst and drink and enjoy to everlasting life. We pray, Lord, that you would continue your work of salvation, that you would fill this city with innumerable people from every tongue and tribe, every place. This is a work you have promised to do, and you will do it, and our hope is in it, is in you. And so we pray this with confidence in Jesus' name, our Savior. Amen.